This is Content Content, a monthly podcast featuring the people behind the content. I'm Ed Marsh. This is episode number 17, recorded July 2nd, 2017. Happy July 4th holiday, everyone who's celebrating. Today's guest is Allie Prof, who works for freaking Boeing in Seattle, Washington. How are you today, Allie? What's going on? I'm good. I like how you have the freaking Boeing. <laughs> how cool is that? You work for Boeing. That's got to be a pretty cool job. It is. There's, I mean, with everything, there's pros and cons. Um, of course. I am choosing to, so let me back up a little bit. So there's the whole pendulum swinging back and forth. And so <laughs> Boeing has chosen to move all of their support group to Mesa, Arizona in the next year or two. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. So we are all starting to look at new employment options and Boeing is not uh-huh. considered high tech. They have some really awesome high tech um, options when it comes to airplanes, but not <laughs> so much when it comes to software. And so I'm finding that okay. out. But luckily, I have other people that I talk with and some projects that I'm working with on the side. So nice. I can do both the things that really make me happy in terms of helping people make airplanes, but then also get the tech on the side. Mm-hmm. So what are the things that make you happy then that, uh, that are, you're doing on the side? <clears throat> I have, um, so I started a blog two or three years ago called Technically Eclectic. And right. it started out just a place for me to kind of explore things that interested me about technical communication. Um, because I really believe that technical communication is an all-encompassing thing. It's not just writing words. Like, if you're going to be hmm. a good technical communicator, you also need to be good at user interface because the words are going to interact with the user interface. And you have to know about the customer journey because your words are going to fit into that customer journey. Right, okay. And then there's... Um, content management and content strategy and information architecture. And so what you do fits into the whole piece. And you can either choose to be like a little worker bee with your head down, which is where I was about five or 10 years ago. Just tell me what to do. I'm going to do it. And Hmm. then I'm going to go home and be with my family. Um, Or you can say, I'm really interested in how I can affect the larger picture. Where do I fit in? How how can I really help the whole organization and not just my little piece? So what prompted you to make that sort of change? Really? I'm not, it was a gradual thing. There was no sudden light bulb moment that said, aha, I'm going to do this. Um, Probably one of the things that started me on that path was applying to be a speaker for a conference Mm. um, at, and it happened to be at LavaCon. Nice. All right. Well, you know, why don't we start off? You've had a, you know, you've had a, a long career, obviously, and you started off um, working for the Navy, I think. So thank you for your service on this holiday weekend. Um, can you go back and tell us how you, you became a technical communicator? Yes. So um, when I was growing up, I was always with my nose in a book. I, my mom, when family came over to visit, she would pull me out of my bedroom saying, people are more important than books. And I was like, mom, (laughs) I just want to read my book. And I really loved reading and writing. But then as I kind of got older and I started writing 
creative stories and people would say, oh, well, what about this? And maybe that character should be doing that. And it was really hard to take the comments and the feedback because it was so mm. personal. Um, and I, I realized I didn't really want to share my stories because I was also kind of awkward and shy, um, <laughs> which is common in most like middle schoolers. And so then right. I started drifting, like I, I still read, but then I started drifting towards math and science because it was very objective, like either two plus two okay. equals four or it doesn't. Um, mm. You know, the algebra equation is solved for X or it isn't. It was very black and white. And so it was much more comforting to me and my emotions were less involved. So then um, when mm. I got, you know, you're graduating high school, you're a junior in high school, what am I going to do with my life? So I was looking around and, well, two things. One is um, I thought that I wanted to be an engineer. And so I was looking in, at the University of Washington School of Engineering because I grew up in the Seattle area. And okay. I found this um, technical communication program. And it was the best thing ever because I could do both reading and writing and math <laughs> and science all together at the same time. It was amazing. So... That's how I started in with the technical communication. And then also, you know, college is kind of expensive, so I was looking at options. And my father was in the Navy. My mother's father was in the Navy, my maternal grandfather. And then wow. I have a whole bunch of uncles and cousins and aunts even who are Marine Corps and everything else. So I applied for a Navy ROTC scholarship. So mm. they helped me pay for college. And I graduated the University of Washington as a um, as an ensign in the Navy, and also wow. with a degree in engineering in technical communication. Hmm. And I also had a minor in communications, and I almost minored in mathematics, and I also had a minor in naval science. Wow, what what's a minor in naval science do for you? Or how, how do you get that kind of degree? <laughs> you do ROTC for four years. Oh, okay. You don't really do much with it. It's mostly history. Um, Understood. Okay. Yeah, naval history and how things work. Hmm. But yeah, so then I graduated the UW, um, and of course you have to go do the Navy. So I went to Rhode Island, studied the basic surface warfare officer school. And then I went to my first ship, which was the USS Vela Gulf, which is a guided missile cruiser. And it was CG-72, hmm. based out of Norfolk, Virginia. Um, and the interesting thing was, so I reported there in March. And then we, uh, we were going to deploy in September of 2001. Hmm. So I was, oh. yeah. So we were um, loading mattresses and food and stores and other things when all of a sudden they were like, oh, my gosh, turn on the TV. And so we turned on the TV and we saw the planes crash into the World Trade Towers. Oh, and we got the orders that we needed to get underway within hmm. like it was a sortie. So you had to get underway within a certain amount of time. Okay. So luckily it's a gas turbine engine ship. So we were just able to push the buttons. We left all sorts of people um, who were at dentist appointments because we were getting ready for our overseas deployment. Um, people were handing car keys to the ombudsman on the pier with the instructions on how to pick kids up from daycare. It was really crazy. Um, Holy cow. But then we, we went up to, off the coast of New York for a week, 
came back, um, finished picking up all of our people <laughs> and all <laughs> of our supplies, and then went across the Atlantic towards um, the Middle East. Huh. Wow. That's uh, that's some interesting story. I mean, I was in New York City on September 11th. I was stuck in the city, but, um, you know, I didn't have any place to go, and I didn't have a, a, a ship to be <laughs> launching on. So that's um, that's a really crazy story. Well, that's interesting. So where, you were there, too. Yeah. Yeah, I worked in the city at the time. I uh, worked in the city most of my career until um, just about six years ago when I moved. Uh, I live in New Jersey, and I'm now working in Jersey City, which is directly across the Hudson River from New York City. So I have some pretty nice views of the Statue of Liberty and, uh, you know, downtown New York City. So it's a really cool place to work uh, on top of the job itself is a pretty cool place to work. But uh, yeah, um, <clears throat> it was an interesting, interesting day to be uh, in New York City. I wasn't anywhere close to the Trade Center, thankfully, but um, it was certainly a very surreal day, as I'm sure you, you would agree. Yeah. So, okay, so why don't you tell us, um, okay, you've you've done your tour of duty or um what happened after that and i guess you know we're leading up to how you joined the technical communications world right so um i got back from deployment and it was my time to get out of the navy and i thought what am i going to do i hmm. really enjoyed um or i really wanted to help people like that's something that nice. really drives me is kind of this mental image of well, when i was reading books a lot of them were fantasy science fiction Hmm. kind of dorky. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I was kind of awkward and dorky growing up. And so I, I had... read a lot of science fiction growing up. <laughs> and like, I didn't want to just be the princess in the tower. I also wanted to be the knight <laughs> in shining armor. So nice. I, uh, I was like, well, how can I help people? So I decided I was going to be a teacher. Okay. And I was going to be a math teacher because that was fun and awesome. And I love math <laughs> and I wanted other people to love math also. So I taught for a year at a private school, thought, this is great. Mm. I went back and I got my master's in teaching. And then mm. I taught for a year at a public school and realized that I'm really great at explaining things and I'm not so great at classroom management. Ah, um, okay. So then I, uh, I decided to switch careers and I said, well, I have my degree in technical communication. I might as well be a mm. technical communicator. And, um, I knew somebody who was at Boeing and, you know, I had been sending my resume to a couple of people, but my friend at Boeing was like, Oh, you're a math teacher. We have a group who has a document or who has a series of documents with mathematical equations in them. And we need a math writer. We need somebody who can write and somebody who can understand the mathematical equations and also kind of proofread the math as well as proofread the English. So huh. that's how I got started in Boeing as a contractor. And then a okay. few, few years later, I went direct. So I've been technical writing. Within Boeing, it's kind of interesting. We're like mini contractors where you can have a job that's mm -hmm. just one document long or you can have... For instance, oh, wow. I was with a group for 12 years. Um, they were my base group, and then I also worked with many other groups on the side as hmm. as their work statement went up and down. But um, huh, okay. Yeah, so I was with reliability and maintainability. So there's a group. Um, the reliability part is that they calculate how often a part breaks and how often uh. it should be replaced. So, for instance, you know, you're in your car. 
you get your oil changed every three months or 3,000 miles. Well, who decided that? How how did they figure out how long that that oil change would last? Or your car's headlight. There's a certain, calc when you read the package, there's a certain calculated hours of how long that light bulb should last. Well, who decided right. that? And so what Boeing does, we're actually really great in analytics. We've been um, ramping hmm. up analytics lately. Um, so what they do is they calculate how long a part should last, and then they gather information from all of the Boeing airplanes flying all over the world by all of the airlines. And they say, okay, we calculated that this light bulb should have so many flight hours, and how mm. long is it lasting before they replace it? And if, they, and if it lasts longer than calculated, great. If it lasts mm. shorter than calculated, what's going on? Is there some sort of electrical thing that is causing, right. you know, extra um, bulb or, you know, so what's going on? So then they analyze that and figure out what it takes to, uh, to get the right number of hours so that airplanes don't have to replace parts before they wear out, but they also aren't stuck with broken parts on the airplane because airplane safety, it's really interesting it's a worldwide thing that goes mm. cross companies. So it doesn't matter if you're Airbus or Boeing or Bombardier or anyone, there's a safety commission and you share data that might otherwise be proprietary in the interest okay. of safety. All right. That's well, that's reassuring to know as a flyer, yes. <laughs> as a consumer. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So, it's, it's always interesting to hear people's stories about how they got into the field. I came into tech writing because I was absolutely terrible at science and math in high school and college. And writing just came, I guess, naturally to me. So it's interesting to see that you've kind of went that opposite route, even though you had that technical communication interest, sounds like pretty much your entire life. I didn't even know what technical writing was until I had my first technical writing interview in 1993, 1994. So it's always interesting to see how people get to where they are in their careers. Yeah. And so, um, one of the things that I think you might have a leg up on is lately I've been really interested in storytelling in technical writing, mm. technical storytelling. And the reason why is because, so my first presentation at LavaCon was about video. And one of the things about okay. video was <clears throat> being effective. So then, um, I, my second topic at a conference was about emotive analytics and storytelling. Or sorry, my second. Yeah, I want to ask you about all these things. Yeah. So my second, my second topic was storytelling because one of the things about video is to tell a story. So I was like, oh, okay. storytelling. That's kind of interesting because I love to read, um, and I'm still not willing to put any sort of creative fiction out for the general other people to read because it's still too personal. Um, but Facebook did a really interesting thing when I was researching my video where they had how to change your password and what could be more boring than how to change your password as a technical hmm. writer. We were like, oh, how to change your password. Everybody knows how to change your password. Three little sentences, move on. But Facebook did an entire video that was only a minute and 12 seconds and it had a complete hmm. story arc where a professor came in and um, she signed on to her group um, Facebook and she had her 
for her class and she had her screen displayed in front of the class and everybody got to see that her password was Benjamin Franklin is sexy or something like that. <laughs> and oh so, you know, so she, she disconnects the projector and then she changes her password and then she reconnects her projector and goes on teaching the class. And so they set up this kind of this arc, the story arc, and then they broke from the story arc to do the screen capture of point here, click here, type here, and then they go back into the story arc. And they had a video for how to tag and untag yourself from hmm. photos, how to friend or unfriend people, how to change or edit your status. So they had like this author lady with a cat and she's deciding on the title for her next novel. And then, so she types it out in a status for all of her friends to see. And then she decides that she wants to change her, her book title. So then she has to go in and then again, you know, here's the screen capture mm. point here, click here, type here, and then it goes back into the storyline. And this is all under a minute or maybe like a minute 12. And it really fascinated me. So then I started getting mm. into storytelling and I realized how big storytelling is mostly in the marketing, like content marketing and sales right. and marketing. Mm -hmm. But I also realized how important it was just for the more research I did, it was really important for like cognitive psychology and sticky learning because if you're writing instructions, you really want your people to understand, remember and learn, right? Yes. It's not like I want to write an instruction that somebody's going to forget. <laughs> so, yeah, but then get more hits on that page. So it's you, good for you overall. Yeah, you can. Although there's natural degradation for like if you don't do a task, then you have to be like, oh, how did I did do that again? So right. I started realizing how important storytelling was, and also how hard it is to do, especially okay. when you're writing manuals. And the more regulated your industry is, the more difficult it is to do. So if you're a relatively okay. new startup software company like MailChimp, they're a really awesome example. They have really great brand standards, but then they also have like this where they lead you through. And at the end, their mascot, Freddy the, Freddy the Chimp, um, he has this paw up on the screen. It's like, you did it high five. And so there's people who take pictures of themselves high fiving their computer screen because they just sent out oh an God. email campaign. Another really great example is Intuit who does TurboTax. Right. Okay. So they went through and they're like, okay, so people are really, you know, not happy about doing taxes. So let's, <laughs> and that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's go ahead and figure out how we can make this more personal. And so what they did is they started out with, how do you feel about doing your taxes? And there's a happy face, a neutral face, and a frowny face. Okay. And so you can, right now, those don't lead you down three paths, but it gives you, it gives them a chance to say, you know, if you're, if it's the happy face, it's like, yes, we love doing taxes too. And if it's the frowny face, it's like, we understand and we are here mm. to help you. And we are going to make sure that this goes as smoothly as possible. So right away, they're building a connection with their with their user, because also when you're doing taxes, you're giving over very personal information, your birth right. date, your social security number, all these, all these, all, you know, your job wages and earnings and everything else. And so they kind of ease into it. So when they ask you for your birthday, they say, that's cool. Our company is 40 years old. And if they... Hmm. 
when they ask you like where you live or what state you live in because some states have sales taxes, some states have income taxes, and some states, okay. you know, you have to figure out if your state is a state that files state taxes as well. Then they say, hey, we live in California or wherever it is. And so they're they're kind of making this reciprocal back and forth thing. And so they're, it, it's a story. It's kind of an interactive story. And the idea being that you're trying to build a connection you're asking somebody out for coffee before you ask them to marry you. You know, you don't just go up to a random person <laughs> on the street and be like, will you marry me? Because they're going to be like, no way. But if you say, hey, you know, you want to go out for coffee or, you know, maybe go to the park or something. And then you, you start small and then you have them over for dinner and then you have them meet your parents. And then eventually it's like, would you marry me? Hmm. Okay. And I think. So. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I think that what's really important nowadays is, you know, people talk about, you know, whatever 4.0. I think we're in the age of information hmm. 4.0, where 1.0 was we, you know, it we are handwriting books and it's really hard to even write the books. And then 2.0 was the printing press, where now we can mass manufacture books and people are starting to read more. And then, but still, like, even when I was growing up, because I, I'm part of the, I guess they're calling it exennials, where I grew up. Yeah, my wife just brought this up. <laughs> oh, my God, really? I grew. Do we, need to, do we need to further break this down? I don't understand. Well, I'm, Anyhow. I'm part of the generation where I was born and grew up elementary school analog, and then digital came about in, like, fifth grade to ninth grade and then by the time I was in high school it's like oh look computers and then in college it was hey look there's this new thing email and these <laughs> FTP servers so I'm part of the generation that bridges both the analog and the digital generations and it's oh, a really okay. interesting place to be so the reason why I go is when I was growing up um, and you know, somebody gives you a research project, like an English teacher or a history teacher or something, and you're really limited by the books that are in your physical library because right, I didn't true. have the internet growing up. And so I that was still kind of information 2.0. And so then information 3.0 was the internet came. And, oh, my gosh, mm. all this information. And so now if a history or an English teacher gives a student a, a research project, you just go onto the internet and now the, and then the problem became, is this a good source or a not good source? Is it a reliable mm. source or not? Um, what's their agenda? But the point is, is that you can be in the middle of the Montana, I think is the least populated state or maybe Wyoming. I'm not sure. Um, mm. But you could be in a very unpopulated area and still have access to all this amazing information. Right. And now it's, information 4.0 where I'm a user and I can go onto YouTube and find a video on how to do SharePoint by some 14 year old. <laughs> so really what's my challenge as a company or as a professional um, or, you know, as somebody who's trying to build connection. And that is what I said is building connection is now anybody can get information from anywhere. What brings people to my product? What brings people to my service? Yeah my company and that's the emotional feeling that you've created by doing this sort of 
storytelling and and connection building. I will come to your company because I like you or I trust you. Right. Okay. Yeah, I get it. And um I get it, but it sounds difficult to get that technical storytelling kind of off the ground, especially if you kind of have to sell that to someone in your management team. How do you, I mean, I, I like the idea of it. I'm not sure if that's what I'm doing because I'm in a regulated environment. I'm in financial services and, you know, I'm documenting what these users do every day, but I'm not sure if there's a story there or what kind of story I should be telling. Should I, you know, can you give us some examples? I'm wondering, is this like, Oh, if you're going to be doing this at the end of the day, here's how you do this. Or is there some, is there something more to it? There's something more emotional there. Sure. So when, when you're in a, a non-regulated industry like MailChimp and Intuit, Quicken, TurboTax, um, you can add a lot of style and personality to your writing and you can be a little bit more colloquial. Okay. And so I think that that industry has an easier time of the technical storytelling. When you're in the highly regulated industries like medicine or finance, it becomes more difficult to put that personality in your writing. But there's two mm -hmm. ways that you can still accomplish it. The first is, is your user journey. And if you have your user journey, then that is a story in and of itself. And you're, you may not have mm -hmm. the the narrative in your writing, but because you have a user journey and you know what your user is thinking and most importantly, what your user is feeling, then you can write the most effective documentation for that point in time in that journey. Does that make sense? I think so. Can you explain for those people who aren't really familiar with the user's journeys, what you're talking about? Oh yeah. So basically a user journey is you take your ideal client, sometimes it's called an avatar, um, sometimes it's called a user persona, and what you mm -hmm. do is you take that person and say, okay, um, at STC Summit there was a lady, Michelle Gardner, who gave a really great presentation on customer journey. And so her example throughout her presentation was Lorelei Gilmore from the Gilmore Girls wanted to buy a cup of coffee. And so you break hmm. that journey down into steps. So her first step is she is going to get the coffee. And then she parks. And Well, first of all, is she going to pre-order on her phone or is she going to just go to in person? So she decides she's going to go in person. So she drives her walk. She's, and then she approaches the store. And so... What, what is she thinking and feeling as she's approaching this door? Okay, she opens the doors and walks in. What is the initial um, like layout of the store? How does she look at the menu? How does she make her choice? And so each of these are steps within the person or within the customer journey. Now, if you're okay. doing software, um, or so for me within Boeing is I have engineers, and I don't really care about. Um, you know, if, if, when they're getting up out of bed in the morning or anything. But let's say I have um, an engineer and, you know, Ed the engineer, and he's at work and he's trying to do a task. And then he realizes that he needs to do a process. And so he's going to go look up the process document. Well, why is he doing the process? Is he going to be anxious? Is he going to be distracted? Is he going to be worried? Um, Hmm. So 
how is he feeling? How is he thinking? How is he coming into this journey of using my document? And it's, it's hard to give a story from work because I don't want to share too much. And so I err a little right, bit on being a little bit too vague. Um, so he's, he's wanting to do this process. And so he's coming in and let's say um, he knows how to do it, but he was told that he was doing it wrong. And so he's hmm. a little bit irritated. And so he's consulting the process to prove that he was right and not the manager or someone else. Okay. Or maybe he's coming into the process because he knows he's right and he has to interact with another group and they're refusing to um, involve him in the meetings on the decision to make part X. Okay. And so he needs the process to basically beat the other group over the head with. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, so the, those are two different situations. He might be coming to this process document that I'm writing. Okay. And those are the stories that involve my process document. And so as okay. I'm writing my process document, I'm trying to think not just what is the information being conveyed, but also how is the user going to use the information that's being conveyed? Hmm. Okay. That, make, I, that, that makes more sense to me. But now is it, you know, is the empathy side of it, okay, I know, you know, do you write, okay, I know you're probably coming to this procedure because you're frustrated, you're in the middle of the day and something's going on. I mean, do you, do we go into that level or is it kind of, you write it empathetically, I guess, I'm not sure. How do you write something like that? So it depends. Um, I try to, or I have a lot of imagination, and so I like to kind of go off in my own mind. I don't really write any of this down. Um, and also, when I'm working on documents, I'm usually a team of one, so I don't have to write right, it okay. down. Um, let's see. I'm just thinking about, what do I actually do? I, th <laughs> I think it's I... It's funny when you have to think about what you do every day. It's so ingrained. You're like, how do I do actually do this? I know. So I think what I do is I take it to the level that it's useful, and I try not to take it too much farther because I honestly don't have a lot of time. I'm usually trying okay. to do more documents than I have time to do them in. Um, mm. I don't know what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then what I also do is as I'm working with the the subject matter expert, the SME, um, I get feedback from them as to what they're thinking and, and feeling. And I also okay. try to talk to the users who are reading the document. Okay. Most of my documentation are revisions of past documentation. Um, I do create new like revenues, but I don't do a lot of, I, by percentage, I do a lot more Rev, you know, B, C, L, K, okay, then I gotcha. do revenue. And so when I talk to the existing users, I hear their stories and I hear what they're using or why they're using that document and what they're, what they think is good with the document and what they think is bad with the document. Um, one of the things about Boeing not being high tech is that we have almost no internal metrics or analytics so we don't have mm. download we don't have time on page we don't have anything so it's a little bit hard to really right. to really gauge how effective my documentation is i have to do it kind of the old-fashioned way 
where I, <laughs> I just talk to the users. Um, but another part of the story is, you know, you, in UX, one of the oft repeated mantras is you are not your user. And so you right. can, you can think about this user and idealize a user, but then you have to actually go out and find out what the user is really thinking and what the user really wants. Um, and hopefully you have analytics to work with, but if you don't, um, interviewing is a really time honored tradition and it works really well. Hmm. Um, right. So I talk to my users, I talk to the people who are reading the document, um, finding out how they, how they're using the document, what they think, what they feel, what are the problems, what are the places that are really well written. And then I can, what I see myself as a technical communicator is I'm bridging the gap between what the SME wants to push out and what the user hmm. wants to digest. And so I bridge that gap and make sure that it's all included. And I put the information that the SME wants to push out, but maybe it's organized differently than he or she originally thought. And I make it more digestible for the user to take in. Right. All right. Well, that sounds good. Sounds like you're doing it right there. And, uh, you know, I'm thankful that I have analytics. We're, uh, you know, we're big on the analytics, so we get that information. And I do actually talk to users sometimes, which is sometimes daunting and sometimes pretty good. But usually you're right. You know, speaking to people, I actually are willing to talk to you most of the time, I find. So it's really interesting to have that blend of analytics and, uh, you know, user input, which is, it's been increasing in our firm. So that's really nice to have more engagement with users. Even even just comments back and forth on a page that we've written has been really, really helpful in those, uh, you know, for that kind of feedback. And that kind of feedback is what's building the relationship between you yes. and your user, which is making yes, them want to stay with your company and keep going with your company and then buy more product or continue buying <laughs> your product. Right. And that's, uh, it's nice that we're seeing you know, more engagement in the comment section. And you see, you know, if I'll respond, I'll say, let me get back to you or let me find more information. And I'll see people are liking that or people are following up and saying, hey, did you ever get this? So it's a check on me as well saying, oh, okay, you know, I've got all these other uh, deliverables, but, you know, don't forget that you've got people who are who are waiting for information on you. So it's interesting, um, <clears throat> you know, it's an interesting way to work and get that con almost constant feedback from your from the people who are actually using your documentation and not just the subject matter experts or as we call them at our firm content champions exactly and that sort of back and forth is um what i think technical storytelling is all about is okay. that for me you know coming from the more math and science side I would write the document because it was pure information and I was writing the information right. for the sake of information. And I know a lot of technical writers come in from the journalistic side mm -hmm. and I kind of envy them in a way because they have that training and that practice about, no, I'm not writing information because it's in a pure white ivory tower. I'm writing this mm. information because it's interacting with people and trying to tell that story, even if it's a nonfiction story or a technical story. And that's building the relationship with the users, which keeps them coming back. Right. And I actually, um, although I never practiced journalism, I was a journalism major in college and that's the way I, I always wanted to be a reporter. And I think, you know, that ability to interview people and kind of take yourself out of it, I think has been really useful in my career. 
especially as so, podcasting. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's that too. That I get, well, I, you know, I think that led to it. I think, you know, me being able to communicate and having, you know, I did some college radio and I did journalism. So it kind of just fell naturally. It fell more naturally to me than writing a blog or coming home and writing a blog after I'm writing and working on words all day. It just felt like I could do this and more natural. And, you know, I, although I have to say, I've certainly, my interview technique has certainly changed and I think improved as I've done this podcast. So, you know, there's a practice too, and that I can take that expertise and stuff that I've learned from this and apply it to what I do in my job every day. Mm-hmm. So I know you've alluded to that you've spoken at LavaCon, you've spoken at STC Summit, uh, which is where our mutual friend Ben Welk introduced us. Uh, and you've always also spoken at Writers UA. So um, from someone who was not comfortable putting out their fiction work or their creative work, how did you get into the role of speaking in public and speaking at conferences? So, um, like I said, the creative work is really personal and it's really hard to receive feedback on, but when it comes to, and I, I am kind of shy and awkward. I'm still a recovering (laughs) awkward person. Um, aren't we all, (laughs) but when it comes to teaching, it's not about me. It's about, the subject and it's about help helping people so whether it's teaching math or teaching people about video or teaching people about emotive analytics or technical storytelling there's it's it's about the information being transmitted and who I'm talking to and helping them come to a different place and it's like I almost am removed from the equation I'm just the conduit it's okay, not about right. me and that's what makes it easy for me to be a speaker is it's about the information I research. And um, so I just recently wrote a a blog post for the STC notebook about how I became a speaker is that I was at my first LavaCon and somebody was like, you should be a speaker. And I'm like, what? You're crazy. (laughs) But it, it got me started to thinking about how I do presentations at work and I can do that. So then I was like, yeah, I could do this. But then I started doubting myself, like, I'm not anyone special. How, who would want to listen to me? <laughs> what, what do I have to offer that would be valuable? And what I realized is that most of the people that I liked at conference, they weren't necessarily Einstein or Stephen Hawking mm. or anybody. Like, like, you don't have to be this super genius in order to speak. Like, you're just a common person that happens to have a different experience or know a little bit more. Hmm. And so what I figured out is, so for my first presentation ever, it was on video. And I, in my mind, I was like, you can do this because you're putting in all this, these hours of research and the value that you're bringing to the people who are watching your session is a summary of tens, hundreds of hours of research so that Mm. they don't have to do that research themselves. You're doing the research, you're weeding out the chaff and you're bringing what's really valuable and you're condensing it all into a one hour session or 40 minutes, 50 minutes plus question and answer. So you're, you're condensing it all into one session. And I've really heard that from a lot of other people too, is that you don't have to be the most brilliant genius in the whole world is that Mm. There's always going to be people who know more than you. 
and there's always going to be people who know less than you. And so mm. the people who know more than you will help you. And it's your responsibility to help the people who know less than you. Nice. And also we, we know different things. Like you had that journalism major. I had the engineering major. So you can help me learn journalism and I can help you learn the engineering aspect. It's not a, no, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> well, my, my point is it's not a better or a worse thing. Like I know, I get you. I know more than you neener neener. It's like, no, I have these different experiences in this different background. And this is my strength that I can share with you. And then you have different life experiences and backgrounds that you can share with me. And so we're not better than each other or worse than each other, but we, we're different than each other. And those differences, the diversity is what makes us stronger. And we need to share those and help other people. Yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's difficult because I've seen, you know, I've, and I, you know, I've had these same doubts when I started speaking a few years ago as well. It's like, well, this has already been said or this has already been done. What can I bring to the table? And then I'm seeing stuff that I've done or I've seen other people doing similar talks at different conferences. I'm like, crap, they're already doing this. Like, why can't I, you know, it's like, so it gets frustrating to say, oh, well, I, you know, this has already been done. What do I do? And trying to find that different way. But I think you're right. I think I have to, we, you know, if you're even thinking about speaking and think about, okay, What's my experience? What What's my unique angle? Even though it may have been done, you know, 30 times over at different conferences, it's that unique perspective. And I think that's interesting. The, the point you make about the research as well is that, oh, you know, you've been doing all this research or all this time on this. You know, let's let's give a shortcut to somebody who might be just getting started in something like this. Right. And, you know, think about like Emeril. He didn't walk into a bookstore <laughs> and say, oh, no, look at all these cookbooks. Never mind. Mm. I'm not going to go into cooking. <laughs> like, oh, no. Actually, Emerald helped me start cooking. I moved out of my parents' house, I, you know, when I got out of college and stuff. And it was right around the time that the Food Network started. So it was, you know, I learned from Emerald and Alton Brown, who I still love you, Alton. Um, and uh, who else was it? Rachel Ray and all those people. It was, okay, this is this was my... This is my education in cooking came from the Food Network and Emerald. And uh, thankfully, I've been able to eat at a couple of his restaurants. Um, but, you know, he taught me how to cook. Yeah. and the, But the thing is, is that it's not like Rachel Ray came on and be like, oh, you know, there's all these, you know, Julia Child is already on TV. There's no way I can be a cooking <laughs> personality. And if, if she had said that, then we would have lost out on her contribution to the cooking world. And instead, she's like, well, you know, Julia Child is amazing, but this is my take on things. And so mm. I can have my own cooking show with this slightly different angle that will reach this slightly different audience. Yeah, and it worked. I mean, look where she is now. I don't even, I don't even know if she cooks on her talk show. But it was, you know, interesting to see, again, that career, um, you know, her career progressed from this person who was trying to load up as many vegetables and products in her hand at one time. And then now she's become a major superstar um, just from 30 minute meals 20 years ago. Yeah. And to bring this back, because I get really distracted on bunny trails. I apologize. Um, <laughs> but to bring this back to the speaker topic is that if you're thinking about being a speaker and you think, oh, well, I might talk about user interface design, but why should I talk about user interface design? Because people have already done user interface design. Well, mm. what is your unique contribution? Did you, you know, is there a case study? Did you try something and it failed and you have these lessons learned? Well, that's really valuable because oftentimes the 
textbook theoretical user interface design information really falls flat on its face when when you actually try to go to apply it. And hmm. the lessons that you learn from the real life application are valuable to other people. Or like I said, if right, there's okay. a, a topic that you want to research on, um, because there's, and then you want to bring back that research um, in a condensed form, maybe there's a lot of differing opinion on the best way to do buttons or menus or navigation. Mm. And so you can have a session that says, hey, I researched five different ways to do navigation drop-down menus, and here's the best way. Or maybe you have a particular take, like accessibility or um, worldwide integration. Like, hey, did you know that people in China or people in South America, they um, they do they approach this user interface a different way, and so you can create a session based on that um, that niche, I guess you could say. Hmm. Inter- yeah, that's that's really cool. I mean, to think about that, that even that, at that that level. Um, yeah, it's you know, I've always encouraged people to go out and talk, especially now that I'm out there talking and getting nervous in front of people. So, you know, <clears throat> I, you know, I think you're right. I think anyone can do it. They just got to, you know, put their, put themselves out there. And I think that's the biggest thing. And that's one of the things that this podcast has done and speaking has gotten me out there. Now people kind of know who I am. So it's, uh, it's interesting. And now I even have people in Poland listen to my podcast. It's pretty crazy. Oh, cool. Yeah. I, uh, my last guest was from his gentleman, uh, Pavel Kowalik, um, and he was a gentleman from Krakow, Poland, and they're, they're doing technical writing. And all of a sudden, I released a podcast this week, and I've got a ton of hits from Poland. It's kind of crazy. I mean, first of all, that there's technical writing in Poland, uh, and it's a thriving community. It sounds really great. But then to see the knock-on effect of, oh, okay, this gentleman reached out to me and said, hey, can I be on your podcast? And now I've got you know a bunch of hits from Poland. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing what the worldwide internet has done for communication. It's amazing, and it's really awesome. I agree. Um, one of your other topics of conversation in your speeches um, is, how do I say this? Using emotional analytics to transform human-machine interaction. What is emotional analytics? So um, it's, it's a really new field of study. Sometimes it's called emotional analytics. Sometimes it's called emotive analytics. Um, I've mm-hmm. even people heard people call it emo analytics, which <laughs> I think my preference is emotive analytics or maybe effective analytics. Um, but what's really fascinating about it is that when you look at the cognitive psychology research about how people make decisions, that we are emotional people. We make our decisions emotionally. And then we justify them with our logic. Even if it's hmm. something as like you're reaching for a paperclip, if you're not blindly reaching for a paperclip and you see like, or a, a binder, and you see a red binder clip and a yellow binder clip, like there's a decision to be made and you have to make a decision. And your emotions kind of like tie into it. Unless you're a computer and you're doing some sort of really, you know, random processing or like very logical processing, your emotions take, take, um, precedence. Okay. And what emotive analytics is, is that, or let me back up. So our current analytics, time on page, um, page hits, that kind of thing, 
they are based or they're the the symptoms whereas the emotions are the uh, the emotions are the base and so okay. by all right so with emotive analytics what you're doing is is your record or blah okay um all the other analytics that you're measuring are the symptoms. I, I, I hate to use the disease symptoms because disease symptoms is bad hmm. and user uh, interface is something that's good. But um, hmm. the, the other analytics that you measure, like time on page and things like that, that has to do with the symptoms, like the outer expression, but it doesn't really get to the base or the why. Like Simon, mm. you know, Simon Sinek start with why. And when you get down to that really base why, that's the really most powerful thing. And because emotions are what drive all of our decision making, it's really amazing that we can now go through and measure the emotions, the base, the root of all of these other user decisions and user actions. And so a lot of questions that I get are, how does it work? So sorry i'm saying so a lot um do you have no no idea how many times i say so <laughs> on my podcast and it drives me crazy i'm like that and i say interesting a lot so i'm trying not to say interesting this time oh that that's interesting <laughs> all right so um there's two ways that you can well actually there's more ways you measure the person's biometrics and how, what sort of biometrics are you measuring? If you have a video connection, you can measure the user's face. And mm. what they've done is they've mapped certain points on your face, like the corners of your mouth, your nose, your eyes, your eyebrows. And they have mathematical formulas that's, that say, here's resting, here's too close together. If the eyebrows are at this angle or the mouth is at that angle or you see teeth or you know, the eyes are open wide, it can, hmm. it can say, oh, you know, the, the corners of the mouth are higher than the center of the mouth and the eyes are crinkling and you maybe or maybe not you see teeth. Well, that's a smile and that means happiness. Um, or it could also mean nervousness. A lot of people smile when they're nervous or when they're trying to be socially hmm. gra graceful and they're not necessarily happy, but they smile. It's kind of like a, a social thing. And then huh. the eyes open wide is surprise, um, or it could be fear. Hmm. Um, so there's all these different facial characteristics that they can measure and they map. For your voice, there's a way in which they can take your voice. And have you ever like just listened to somebody that on all outward appearances seem fine? You're like, dude, you're coming down with something. You sound awful. <laughs> or, you know, the 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 phrasing like it's really interesting and we know this as technical communicators the the difficulty of the written word so for instance the mm. sentence i didn't take the book depending on what what you emphasize it can have a totally different meaning i didn't take the book mm. i didn't take the book i didn't take the book you know you go through all those words and when you you emphasize certain words, it has slightly different connotations <laughs> and meanings. Oh, right. And what our voice, um, the voice analytic software is getting good enough. So it can not only make out what you're saying, but it also can tell 
um, it analyzes the pitch and the frequency. So it can tell if it's high pitch, which means you're probably a child or a woman, or a low pitch. You know, you're hmm. you're probably a man. And then also the, you know, like Chinese is a very tonal language. The difference between ma and ma and ma, like the hmm. the inflections up or down. Like I really butchered that, but I kind of over exaggerated it for the purpose of the podcast um understood it can take those tonal inflections up down or constant and it can also interpret things out of that almost as good as people can so if you think about siri or alexa or cortana or google's um assistant which they didn't name and that's kind of it that's another story but all of these... Yeah, we just got a Google now, and it's like, you know, I say, hey, Google, but I'm like, I want to say something to somebody and not just Google. Yeah, and, well, I'll go ahead and go down that bunny trail for a second. So when they were creating their assistant, they were trying to decide if they should name it or not. And they decided that not to name it because they want you to feel like a, a superhero and to be like, a, and they want it to be an assistant Whereas if you name it, then you start to have a relationship with it and an huh. interaction with it. Like like on Iron Man, when he has a relationship with Jarvis, like Jarvis is almost another person. Um, and, you know, sometimes you talk to Siri like she's almost another person. And hmm. Apple works hard to give Siri a personality. And so she can say right. snarky comments and things like that. And Google is not about like snarky comments or personality. Like they want to be the assistant. And they want to be hmm. just the helper in the background. So that's just, is that an, a good example of emotional analytics saying, hey, we've decided to go the Siri route or the Google route. Sounds like it's exactly what's what you're talking about. Um, that would be more towards the brand and building the brand okay. and the interaction between the user and your product. What emotive analytics is, is actually being able to measure what your user is thinking and feeling. Oh, okay. And so, so there's there's face, there's voice, and then the third is all of your other biometrics. So if you're wearing a Fitbit or something, and you are measuring your mm. your activity, your heart rate, there's even things that you can wear around your chest that measure your respiration, which is your breathing, um, mm. or things that can measure perspiration, like you know, are you sweating or not, or your temperature. So all of those other body biometrics they can measure and also take and put into the whole emotive analytics. So how is this, how is emotive analytics used in the real world? Um, one of the biggest, okay, so there's two. The first is one of the biggest, most commercial integrations was Land Rover Jaguar at the Wimbledon, um, I don't know if it was one year ago or two years ago. They asked like 1,200 people to wear these armbands. And then they also, you know, when you're watching a TV, how they like pan across the crowd. And so mm. they were taking the, the general facial expressions of the entire crowd plus... Oh, boy. Plus the... Uh, well, what they would do is they would just take sampling of the crowd. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, so they would sample the crowd, and then they would also get information from the wristbands, like where people are, what they're doing, how active they are. And they would put this all together into some an analytic huh. dashboard and they would measure the the feelings of the the tournament 
and when feelings were really excited, when there was really a lot of tension in the air or a lot of really excitement, they would schedule um, activities to happen at certain points within, and, and they would be like, okay, we're going to launch this when the activity is like at a level seven. And then when the, this activity is at like a level nine, then we're going to launch that um, event over there. And so they would, they would totally base it on the, the audience. And was the audience ready for this activity or not? Oh, well, mm. you know, there's, there's not enough excitement. So we're not going to launch that yet because the audience isn't ready. It sounds amazing that you can do something like that, but it also sounds kind of creepy. I'm just wondering, you know, I don't want to sound too Luddite here, but, you know, it feels like we're getting closer and closer, all these advertisers. And, you know, I see, I assume that this is happening a lot in the content marketing or the marketing space where, you know, they want to know exactly when the right time is to advertise to you to buy their product. And, you know, I, I'm sure there's a lot of good coming out of this, but I'm also concerned about the, the negative sides about it, that, you know, the hyper-targeted advertising or, oh, we know exactly when to say, hey, go buy a Coke now. It's, 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 it's kind of crazy. And like I said, kind of creepy to me, I think. It's a tool. It can be used okay. for good and it can be used mm. for bad. Kind of like when Pokemon came out, right? Um, mm. Pokemon Go is all of right. a sudden there were people getting up off the couch. They were walking. They were losing weight. They were meeting their neighbors. They were making these friendships. And it was really, that was a use of it for good. However, there are also people setting up um, like Pokestops and out of the way places and then robbing them. Mm. And, you know, then there was worried about child molesters and all these other things. And so that was mm. Pokemon Go for, for bad. <laughs> and <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that I read is that we, this technology is coming. Like, we're not going to stop it. What we need to True. do right now is figure out what are the bounds of use. And we need to create standards mm. and boards and, like, ethics committees so that we can we can properly control it because we're not going to stop it. Um, it is coming. And like Amazon and Apple and Google and hmm. Microsoft on all the other big companies, they are working on their device. Like can Alexa tell if you're irritated or not? And hmm. so being able to, to suggest things and yes, it is a marketing thing, but is, is it going to be used? So here's an example of bad is that you have, uh, a teenage girl who's been kind of brainwashed by the standards of beauty and she thinks she's too fat and so she's watching all these dieting and she's watching all these exercising things and because of her media habits she's being targeted for weight loss right. supplements and things like that and so she spirals down and down and into depression and maybe she commits suicide or not however <laughs> yeah. you can also say um, like Facebook has already, they're trying to walk that line of, hey, we've noticed that your posts have recently gotten towards, you know, what are some of the common markers of suicide? Well, one hmm. one is like starting to give away your possessions or make plans for what happens after you're gone. Um, sometimes, huh. sometimes people who are thinking about suicide do that. And so Facebook can start, sort of say, hey, we think you're tending towards depression and they could say, would you like to talk to a counselor? 
and they can wow. they can offer help to bring you out or to give you support. That's amazing. I had I had no idea that it was that they were doing anything like that. That's that's wow. I wow. That's that's pretty damn cool. I have to say, I'm kind of flabbergasted by that. That's amazing. Um, and it's interesting you bring up Pokemon Go. Uh, my wife is a big player of Ingress, which was kind of the precursor of the Pokemon Go game. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has, um, you know, she's been a big part of the community. And you know, she creates meetups to meet up and play this game, out, or even friends outside of work. You know, friends outside of they become friends outside of the game itself. It brought them together, but they've also become you know, longtime friends and, you know, she's looking for a job now in the, in the tech community and she's been doing a lot of network through that thing. So I definitely, you know, I see the benefit, you know, you're saying the plus and the minus as I see the benefit of that. Also, it mapped out a bunch of the, um, the game was basically for a lot of monuments and stuff like that and in historical places. So it took you to these unique places and stuff like that. So yeah, I guess I see your point that there are positives and negatives and I say that as someone who's just given my pretty much my whole life over to Google between Google Fi and the Google phone and Google or YouTube TV <laughs> and all this stuff and Google Home. So, yeah, we are we are a Google family and they know probably more about me than I do. Yeah, it's really interesting. And then on the large scale thing, you know, we have the worry about terrorism and terrorists and security at at uh, large events like concerts and airports and things like mm. that. And right now, um, we are not at the point where we can identify people. So there's a difference between facial recognition and facial identification. Facial recognition okay. is, is, does a face exist or not? And then facial identification okay. is, who is that face? Gotcha. And the uh, actual facial identification is not good. They had, um, hmm. I read a, a report and I I'm not sure I could be able to reference it again, but um, where they had a control group of people where they took their pictures like profile and face on, and then they, they sent them randomly through airport security and it didn't work very well. And so they decided hmm. to scrap the program. And then there was another city, I think in Florida where they were going to have uh, video cameras in public places, like on the beach boardwalk to try and fight crime. And it couldn't hmm. recognize people very well. And all the, community set up an outcry about being surveil mm. surveillance and stuff and so they took it down yeah so you know on the positive side it would be really great if we could prevent some of that um some of the dangerous things and terrorist activities from happening but then on the scary side then hmm. some of the governments in the world who aren't so freedom oriented could analyze people as they're watching the propaganda play on TV and then be like, oh, you're not showing the right facial expression. You're going to disappear in the middle of the night. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's a tool and it can be right. Yeah. It's just like any other tool, like, you know, words, words are a tool. Are you going to use your words to help or to hurt? Yeah, that's a great point, especially in what we do. And I think hopefully, you know, I think what we do, thankfully, is on the altruistic side where we're trying to help people. And as you said, I think it's one of the things that draw that drew me to the profession is that, hey, you know, we're actually out there helping people do their jobs or do whatever they need to do better. Exactly. Um, and then if you uh, want to know more about especially the facial, um, the facial analytics, there's a company called Affectiva. So Affectiva is a company that is at the forefront of facial analytics, and they have something where you can um, 
download a program onto your laptop and have you watch an ad and what they do is they map your face and then they delete your face but keep the map points oh, okay so oh okay they're very so they are very um, careful about maintaining people's privacy and security and all that but they do have an open source SDK API so SDK is software development kit API is right. application program interface and you can download that and use it for your own product if you'd like. Hmm. Wow, that's cool. After, well, yes, I'll put that link in the show notes so everyone can go and take a look and see if it's it's good for your for your team or for your company. That's great. That's cool. And I like to retweet them a lot. Um, so my okay things that have to do with technical communication, I tweet on my Twitter handle at Technic Eclectic, um, and then my at Alley Prof is just kind of for me for things that I think are interesting and kind of off the wall. Nice. Yeah. I've been playing around with doing that dual role. Cause I think my personal Twitter account has come become professional necessarily, but I'm sometimes I feel like I need an outlet and sometimes I'm just doing that on Facebook, but I think I need to maybe have an alter ego or something on Twitter as well to get my feelings out there. Yeah. So speaking of Twitter, um, this is probably ultra meta, but a couple of weeks ago, there was a tweet about your rep, your webinar that you had. Uh, I think Ben CC'd me on it and said that you referenced uh, in your talk, you referenced this podcast with Alyssa Fox. Um, what's up with that? I'm pretty, I was pretty flattered. Well, so this comes back to storytelling is everywhere. And I was just blind and I didn't see it before. So now that, um, <laughs> so I met you at STC Summit and- right thought, hey, this is really cool. Um, something professional development. I have an hour and a half commute. So twice a week, I have an hour and a half one-way commute. So I have lots of time for professional development. Mm. Um, so I, I was like, hey, a new podcast to listen to. I'm going to download and listen to it. So I was, I've actually listened to about five episodes now. I'm okay. listening um, to the one with David, wait. David Dylan Thomas. Yes, David Dylan Thomas. And that's really fascinating. And he talks about storytelling. But mm -hmm. at the point where I was listening to you, or where I was um, about right before I gave my, my webinar, is I had just listened to you talk about, or talk with Alyssa Fox, and she was talking about content management, or content mm -hmm. strategy, sorry. And her talk about content strategy was about finding a place where you fit in. And she does mention the word. Um, so you asked her the question, what did marketing learn from you? Okay, let me back up. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about content strategy and Alyssa Fox was talking about how she was trying to integrate the technical writing with the marketing writing. Right. You asked her the question, what are the things that they learned from you? You also asked the question, what are the things you learned from them? And her answer was storytelling. Hmm. And it had to do with when you have, um, well, it wasn't quite storytelling directly. She said that one of the things that would be really great is if you have a salesperson talking to a potential customer on the phone, you say, we have this feature. Oh, and here's the documentation. So the features okay. in the documentation are 
interwoven. And she does mention storytelling at some point, which is where my ears perked up, um, because okay. technical storytelling is a skill that I'm tr- I'm developing and really fascinates me. And <laughs> it kind of made me think about how, and I re-listened. I thought she mentioned the whole thing about the blind men and the elephant, where you have a piece of technical documentation right. and it feels like just the trunk or just the feet or just the sides or just the ears. And you don't really see the whole picture, but when you have right. a story and that's also where customer journey or user journey comes in is when you have the whole story, you can know where your piece fits in and it becomes a more effective piece. And then not only that, but it's not just the help, but it's integrating the help with the marketing as a complete strategy as a complete picture. When I went back and listened to it, I didn't hear her say the the blind man and the elephant part, so I'm not sure where I got that from. Um, cool. But it does. Well, make thanks sense. for listening. I'm, I hope you're enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, I am. Cool. The, actually, the last thing I want to ask you about um, is a question that I came up with for some interviews I did recently, and I think I might make this a regular uh, part of the podcast. But I want to know what do you talk about? when you don't talk about technical writing or technical communication? That's kind of an interesting question. Um, (laughs) There's that word interesting again. Um, Let me think about that. Right now, my life is all about creating. um, Okay. For a couple of different reasons. One is, I've been ingesting and learning and everything so much that now I, I just feel like I'm bursting with information and I I need to get it out there. Mm. Um, and I need to, and I really want to help people and show people things. So I'm starting multiple websites, which is kind of crazy. (laughs) Um, I have my website for, you know, the technically eclectic and I'm working on doing webinars and things like that. And then I'm starting a CPTC study guide website with Ben Welk. Oh, okay. Um, in fact, I just got the URL up this morning. And it's it's a place for people who are going to study to come together and connect with each other. We okay. want to be very careful. We don't step on STC or APMG's toes. STC is the Society for Technical Communication, and I don't know what APMG stands for. Um, but they're the ones who administer the test. And oh, okay. we have some really amazing people who are offering paid, um, th- they're certified trainers. And if you really want to do it right, you need to take their courses and do the certified training. But no matter how awesome they are, there's still going to be people who are just going to be like, I want to study by myself. And so mm. we're trying to just start a very low key, non-commercial way to get people together and study. Ben started a Slack channel and I'd like Mm -hmm. to start some, some studying together. It also will help my portfolio because like I mentioned, I, Mm. I am looking for a new job as well. And (laughs) all of my, like I have over 12 years of work all behind a corporate firewall. So I have nothing to show like, Hey, yeah, I'm a great technical writer. You should hire me. But you know, you can't see anything that I've done. So, um, building a, a site, you know, technically eclectic and the CPTC study group is, um, a way to help with the portfolio. Um, I also have an au pair. I have children and, uh, 
it it's really difficult to work out the schedules. My husband and I both work. Mm. And so I'm starting a, a site to help other moms, even though my company is great. I, I have a, a best friend who's had an au pair for three, over three years. Like there were still mistakes that I made and I really want to help um, other moms with that. And, nice. and I'm also a twin mom. Um, oh, wow. I have twins. And so I have my twin support group where the Snohomish mothers of multiples are snow moms. And so I'm helping them. <laughs> I'm helping them with their website. So really, cool. when I'm not talking about technical communication, I'm talking about my websites or <laughs> I'm being really bored boring, not bored. I'm being very boring and talking with my husband. Okay. So what's, what's the schedule for Monday? What's the schedule mm. for Tuesday? Uh, what are we doing this weekend? And you know, now it's summer, so it's planning trips. Um, we're going to take a trip to see the solar eclipse. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, we're going to see it in Idaho. Okay. That's not my first thought of where you go see the eclipse, but <laughs> well, sounds interesting. We're in Seattle. And if you head down I-5 to Oregon, you have to go south of Portland to like Bend area. And the problem okay. with Western Oregon and Western Washington in general is that there's a lot of clouds. It's kind of dreary. <laughs> dreary. Even in the summer, like um, yesterday, it was cloudy up until one o'clock and then the sun broke through. Okay. But there's always this marine layer in the morning and the eclipse oh. is going to be at like nine o'clock in the morning. Okay. Yeah. So you need something clear. Yeah. So we're it. gonna we're gonna cross the Cascades and go to the dry half, and um, we're gonna so we're gonna go even over to Boise, and then it's slightly north of Boise where the the total the path of totality happens, but you can't hmm. get hotel rooms there anymore. <laughs> and this will be our first road trip with the kids, and we're gonna oh continue on to the Tetons. And then spend a couple of wow. days in the Tetons and then come back. Well, that sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. So basically, if I'm not talking about technical writing, I'm talking about my websites. And if I'm not talking about mm -hmm. my websites, I'm in planning phase. Like, what's happening Monday? What's <laughs> happening Tuesday? Do we have what we need for the trip? So nice. it's kind of boring. No, it sounds awesome. You know, it's funny how these things take over your life. You know, I mean, <clears throat> I started this podcast exactly for the same reason that you're starting websites now to get myself out there. Uh, you know, then then content content info came along. Actually, it was reversed. The content content info came first, then the podcast. But then, you know, I started blogging more, which I didn't want to do when I started the podcast, which is exactly why I started the podcast. But now it's all out there. And like you said, <clears throat> you know, it's not behind a firewall. It's not corporate. You don't have to worry about um, you know, anything proprietary, it's here's what I do. And here's what I can do for your company. If you want to hire me, I'm not looking for a job right now, but I think, you know, I think you're doing it the right thing by here's something that I can show that isn't behind, uh, you know, some company's internet or firewall. Exactly. And it's also for me, I have, you know, I have my background in teaching, so I could do instructional mm -hmm. design. I have my technical writing. So I'm, you know, a tech writer, but then I also have well, what do technical writers do? They deal with content. So I have the content strategy and the content right. um, creation. And then, you know, what, how do you manage content? So you've got your information architecture. And <laughs> then I also have the math background. So I have business analysis and data analytics and things like that. So it's like, how do I market myself? I'm just so, right. I'm so interested by so many things that right. yes. it's hard to narrow myself down. 
Yeah, I agree. And I've had people look at my resume and say, hey, you know, it doesn't, you know, you've got a lot of good stuff on here, but you're not telling me what kind of job you're looking for. It's like, well, I don't know what kind of job I'm looking for. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's an interesting thing. And I think, uh, and I've said this many times on the podcast that a lot of people are looking to become technical writers from different fields. And I think they don't understand that there's so much more to it than just the writing part that you have to think about content in a completely different way than, than most people are used to. Exactly. And that's, what's so exciting. I think about our fields is that it, Mm -hmm. it is so, all encompassing it you know in a way it's frustrating because you can't just narrow down one set of skills but in a way it's good because you can come at it from the journalism side from the technical side or whatever Um, Mm. and what I'm discovering writing my resume is again telling a story and it's Hmm. um, one of the things I forgot to mention when I was talking about technical storytelling is that you want, you always want your user to be the hero of the story and you are the sidekick. Hmm. So the user is Luke uh-huh. Skywalker and you are Yoda. <laughs> the user is Batman nice. and then you are Robin, you know, or, you know, whatever, whatever sidekick comes to mind. And so when you're writing your... That's a great, that's a great analogy. I like that. Yeah. Especially as a Batman fan. <laughs> so when I'm writing my resume, oh. the person who's hiring me has to be the hero of the story. And then I'm have to be the sidekick. So this is who I am and this is what I can offer for you. Hmm. So, and that's the way that I'm starting to think about my technical writing is that here's the task and here's, you know, you're the use, you're the hero. Here's the task. Here's what you're trying to overcome. You know, you, you may not be battling the, you know, evil of Mordor, but (laughs) you know it's it's still a task and you have to overcome it and every story has an obstacle you have to overcome and so i'm there to assist you along the way i'm going to be the sam to your frodo and help Hmm. help you throw that ring into mount doom (laughs) nice Nice. That's a good analogy. I like it a lot. Um, so anyhow, I think, um, you know, we should wrap, probably wrap yes. up. We're, uh, we've had a lot of great insight from you, a lot of cutting edge stuff. Uh, you've certainly given me a lot to think about, and I hope a lot of people uh, start thinking about storytelling and emotion and emotional analytics, um, as well as getting themselves out there and then, you know, starting to speak. Um, you know, I hope you learn, they learn, people can learn from your leads. So thank you again for coming on. Thank you for being a fan of, a fan of the podcast. And uh, thanks for her great talk. I've really learned a lot. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And I hope I brought value. Oh, absolutely. You certainly brought a ton of value. I'm going to go think about a lot of things when I start back work on Wednesday because thankfully I'm off tomorrow and Tuesday for the holiday. So you can find me on Twitter on Ed Marsh. I think Allie has covered pretty much where you can find her. And if you need a link to them, they'll be in the show notes on my website at edmarsh.com. If you want to subscribe to the content contest and content, sorry, you can subscribe to the content content podcast on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and the Google Play Music Store. Uh, please write us a review so that way people can know uh, more about the podcast and we, hopefully we can get some feedback on how to improve or what we're doing right or what we're doing wrong. Um, if you want to go one-stop shopping to subscribe, you can go to edmarsh.com slash podcast and get all of our episodes 
episodes for download. And from there, you can subscribe using your favorite podcasting client, whether you're on iOS or Android or Windows or whatever you use. So again, Allie, thanks. Uh, Thanks, everyone. Have a great day and uh, get out there and create some great content.